Chao. What do you want? It's a podcast to you. Gotta talk about Giallo movies just for you. The only thing I'd like, I'd really like, is to meet you face to face. It'll happen sooner or later, but you don't have to recognize us. Thanks. However, you disappoint me, duck. You throw a challenge my way. I almost forgot the most important part. We go by Creep, Creeperson, and Chris. And this is Chow Chow Chow. Got it. The harbor, a phone booth sitting right near Pier 11. I'll get out the APB. Move, you bastard. Ciao, ciao, everybody, and welcome to episode 55 of Jallo Chow Chow, the All Jallo Show, where tonight we have Zoe making tea. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I am Creep, and this is Chris, and tonight we're going to be talking about blood-stained films. Yes. And that's the voice that I do the beginning of the show with. What's so up, how's everybody? it going? It's going great. I I've been I've been like completely ensconced. Is that the right word? Or entrenched. Entrenched or ensconced. I'm not sure which. Something's going on in California, guys. I think uh, I think the uh, recreational marijuana laws have been Oh, anyway, right. no, I've so been, uh, I, I've been like ensconced and entrenched, whichever, uh, whichever one that is correct grammatically. I don't know which, I, I think it's ensconced. I don't well, know. I'm a writer and I don't know. In, uh, in Jolly for the last like 48 hours. Cause I've been trying to catch up on, um, the movies that we're t- talking about tonight and the, and the movies that we talked about last time and working on the website and. So I'm, I'm like really, uh, and, and thinking about the films for next time. So I'm like, I'm having a good time here. I got my Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department coffee mug. And uh, I am enjoying uh, some black coffee. I'm it's cold. so jealous of that mug. It's cold now. I got it on eBay. Yeah. A long time ago. On, um. Red the, only bubble. the only thing that sucks about it is that you, ha- you have to be left-handed to let anybody else see that that's what it says on the mug. And it matches yeah. your shirt. Yeah, and I wore the green shirt because I think we had like an Irish holiday recently, and I was trying to be um, topical. But Oh, nice. Yeah, it's really a... That's really good. It's really a shirt I got when I did like the 5K at the Four Seasons. Back when I could actually run more than twenty steps without breaking down and collapsing from nice exhaustion. Um, <laughs> well, um, I am also quite excited about being ensconced in the jolly. So yes, 
Yay. I'm excited about the ones we're doing now, and I'm excited about the next episode, which is a secret until later. <laughs> and um, it'll be fun. Um, but is there anything else new happening? Any DVDs popping, Blu-rays? No, I don't really have uh, too much to to talk about in the way of news. Um, i really not sure if it's just because I don't have my ear to the ground like I did last couple of weeks, but I did, like I said, spend a bunch of time today on the website. The website now has a little news section, which um, I, I had really kind of debated for a long time with having a news section on the Jalo Score website. Um, something that I would constantly be posting to almost like a blog that would be aligned with it. And, you know, it's when you have something where it's supposed to be topical, when it starts to become outdated, um, it doesn't serve a good purpose. It, be, it becomes bad. It's actually goes against you as, as being a content person. So I was really hesitant to do anything. And, the idea of putting up a news site or a news section to talk about what DVDs might be coming out or what festivals might be happening or something and something and something. Um, I never did that, but this is the really the first time since the site was uh, published uh, back in 2013 or 2012, actually. Let me see that for a second. Um, looking at the site here, published old to new. The site went live on September 13th, 2012. So, wow. yeah, so like five plus years ago, right? No, that's not right. My math is awful. Uh, three, three plus years ago, three and a half, roughly. Um, is that right? Three plus two yeah, is 2000. <laughs> <laughs> that's not my strong suit tonight, obviously. Um, Anyway, this is the first time that we've that I've done anything to the site to change the way that the score works, and so we talked about it last last time. We discussed it uh, a couple times ago, um, and now it's been implemented. So on the criteria section, we now have in the standards section of the criteria, we have the three point rule that says that the soundtrack for the film. Uh, is composed by Morricone, Nicolai, or Riz, or Tolani. So I went back in and I um, added that score to all of his uh, films, or all, basically all the films where if you, and just a little tutorial on how to use my site, if you go to uh, the website and you find a, a film that Riz has done the music for, so like, for example, So Sweet, So Perverse, we covered that um, two episodes ago when we started Lindsay. If you click on Riz Ortolani, in, uh, once you go into the details of the, of the page, you'll see the U.S. title, the Italian title, and the, and the year, the director, and the composer. Now, if you click on the year or the director or the composer, it will give you a list of all of the films in Giallo score with that composer. So we have Don't Torture a Duckling, Seven Bloodstained Orchids, Perversion Story, Pajama Girl Case, Seven Deaths in a Cat's Eye, and So Sweet, So Perverse, all scored by Riz. And so they all went up by three points. And that pushed Don't Torture a Duckling into the 90s. 
Um, so we now have, I think, five Jolly in the 90s, or maybe six. Um, I can tell you what those are. Obviously, it's um, Deep Red at the top, followed by Four Flies, Who Saw Her Die, Don't Torture a Duckling, Tenebrae, What Have You Done to Solange, Red Queen, and Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Those are all 90 or 90 or more than 90 points. Um, and we have a lot of films in the 80s as well. So uh, I consider anything uh, of a 70 or higher to be a classic Jolly. Um, and once you get into the 60s, it starts to kind of get into a weird situation where there's just enough stuff that's different to say, well, this probably came at a time before the rules were laid out, or maybe this is just some kind of weird offshoot of what was normally being done. Um, so for example, a film like All the Colors of the Dark, um, which kind of has some jolly elements, um, or A Short Night of Glass Dolls, or you know the ones that we covered recently, the, the Proto Jolly, by Lindsay, those are all in the 50s and, the, and 30, between 30 and 50, and they're all very far from the classic Jalo. So um, anyway, that's the update to the site. Obviously, I added the write-ups for the films that we covered last week, An Ideal Place to Kill and A Quiet Place to Kill, as well as the two that we're covering tonight. So um, I'm excited to um, get to the point now where we have 60 films in the database for Jalo score, uh, which is crazy because when I launched it, I think there was 12. Um, so it's been a lot of work, which is great because that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to start a website and have it be something that was just this project that was ongoing. And thanks to this podcast, um, I have a reason to keep it going other than just for my own pleasure. So now you have uh, to do it for my own pleasure. Right. Yeah. And uh, we need to thank um, <clears throat> Sanders Keel, who um, really gave me a huge uh, thing of kudos on his own Facebook page about the website and um, how much he likes it and tried to share it with as many people as he could. So I do appreciate um, all of his um, kudos, and it's great to just have people actually going to the site and checking things out and, and appreciating um, how much fun it is to do all this stuff um, with these films. Because um, it's hard to think of, I mean, there, there are other subgenres of, of thriller slash horror movies that you could probably do this with, but I think the, the giallo is just such a perfect type of film for this kind of fun that we have. So that is, uh, that is it for updates for me. What about you? You got anything good going on? Um, I am doing another podcast um, called the True Dicks Podcast Ooh. about um, mystery, detective, and um, crime fiction. Cool. Um, so that's been kind of fun. We've done a couple episodes. Um, and it's me and another writer um, named John Oakes who does the Death Pope books and the Chorus Detective series. 
Um, so it's been really, really fun. That's another, and we're actually going to be doing in a couple weeks, a show about, um, Jolly. So awesome. So do you guys like, do you guys do the same thing? Kind of like pick a a single book and review the book or do you, Um, is it more and more? um, It's more like, um, historical, like, um, what we did on the last episode was, the history of the mystery genre and went from uh, the beginnings to about um, where Sherlock Holmes starts. Mm. And then the next episode is going to be basically Sherlock Holmes until like 1920. And um, then we kind of go over books we're reading and um, do little reviews on the books, but then talk about like, just like different tropes and, um, theory behind the craft and all that stuff like your red herrings and your MacGuffins and um, all this other kind of shit. So it's, it's kind of neat. So I'm having fun with it. Yeah. So that's, again, you could go to true dicks podcast.com or just look it up on iTunes. Good. Awesome. I forget who it was. That's. That what? I think you froze. Well, while he's frozen, I'll go ahead and tell you a joke. Why did the skeleton not cross the road? Because he didn't have the guts. And for the viewer on the thing right now, um, for anyone watching live, um, if you want to join us or ask us any questions, you could go to the Q&A. I think it's a button on the page there for you. And just ask ask away. And Chris said, he just messaged me on Facebook and said it wouldn't be a show without a crash. So he has effectively crashed. So um, while that's going on, um, let me see. What else can we tell you about? Oh, I could show you some stuff. This is a book I'm reading at the moment. It's called The Lady Transparent. The Lady is Transparent by Carter Brown. Um, If you like Jalo movies or the Jali, you would actually probably like Carter Brown books just because they're kind of raunchy in a 60s raunch. But um, it's all about mysteries. And the one I just read was called The Brazen, and that one was really good. And it was just about, like, this uh, murder that this detective, Al Wheeler, was trying to solve. And this one is about um, someone killed in a locked room at a house, and everyone in the house assumes it's a ghost, but Al Wheeler's got to figure it out. And then I'm also reading The Restless Hands by Bruno Fisher. And this book actually is a first printing, and it came out in 1949. So, and it's just a lovely looking book. Take a look at that. (laughs) Yummy. Good looking stuff. Nice artwork. And the Carter Brown artwork, by the way, is just amazing. Most, like, I'm trying to collect all the books from the 60s that have, like, this kind of cover on it um they're really great 
But um, other than that, oh, any particular flavor of detective story you'll be focusing in the podcast from Jason. Um, we're kind of going over everything. And um, the, f the episodes we're going to be doing in the future, the near future, are... Um, Sherlock Holmes, like I said, and then we're going to be doing the golden age of mystery, which is like 1920 to 1930, and that'll, or actually probably up until 1950, but we're also going to be doing a Jolly episode and an episode on the pulps and um, stuff like that, so we're going to try to kind of go over everything, and my partner really wants to do an episode on the cozy mystery, which I am not well versed in. So that'll be fun trying to dive into that. And Chris is back. I'm back, everybody. Which is amazing that I was able to talk. You talked all the way through that. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, you know, usually my computer gives me a sign when it's going to just take a dump. Uh, things start to freeze up. I get that little pinwheel thing spinning around forever. Yeah. Uh, this time I just went black, like I'm in the middle of talking and black. And um, but the good news is, like you said, you filled up the time. I won't have to edit it. Um, I was going to say, uh, I forget who it was that said, "Don't worry about how obscure your the thing that you like, whatever it is, whatever it is that you like in your life, do it because." No matter how obscure you think it is, there's obviously someone else out there who's interested in it. So that's why my that's why my podcast on pubic hair is so amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I can't wait for episode number sixty nine of your pubic hair episode podcast. <laughs> that was dumb. It's called Locking up the furball. Um, ah, crap. There it is. Oh, it is just going forever. I that wanted the other joke. one. I I clicked the I clicked the drum roll instead of the rim shot. Oh well. There you go. Oh and my geez. my episode on my uh episode on rim shots, that's uh, another <laughs> one. Um, but no, uh, Jason there it is. <laughs> Jason also asked uh, or said um first edition and that condition. Well, very impressive. Um, there are a couple of art books that focus on classic detective magazine covers and such. Yeah, we have a bunch of them because um, my wife Zoe is actually really big on those as well. <clears throat> and um, we have a lot. And um, on, I think I said this last time, I'm not sure, but on April 3rd um, in Glendale, that's pretty close here, uh, is the like the 39th annual or 37th annual vintage paperback um, trade show and whatever. And so there's just, there's going to be people from all over the world selling like first editions of old paperbacks and all sorts of other shit. And um, we're going to go and spend way too much money on shit. And that's <laughs> just kind of how it's going to go. So I'll let you guys know after April 3rd. Cool. But yeah. So what's shaking, Bacon? Nothing, man. Let's uh, let's is, get is to this. Computer, is your computer okay? All right. Yeah, so um, I'm sure are, it'll crash. Are you again. going first? Yeah, I figured it, we might as well go chronologically, right? And 
yeah Let's cover butterfly first so um yeah good morning good, good evening everyone butterface um so the first movie up for grabs on the sh on the price is right is um the film called a blood stained the blood stained butterfly and i'd like to not to be confused with uh with a blood stained butterfly it's only one and it's the it's the it's the important one Um, I'd like to begin or preface the discussion tonight uh, for anybody who's listening to this podcast who hasn't seen these films, I would urge you to stop now. Both of these are available on YouTube in their complete uncut format in English and in pretty decent shape. Um, I have a copy of both of these films uh, in my collection. However, when I was kind of on the go and trying to reference certain spots in the film. I just looked them up on YouTube and jumped in. Um, and uh, so, it, you know, there are situations where we have podcasts with films that are pretty hard to come by. Um, and Bloodstained Butterfly is one of those that I haven't even seen on DVD, or I'm not sure if it's ever been released in the U.S. on DVD, but it's up on YouTube. So um, YouTube has become this treasure trove of jolly over the last couple of years people just getting good sources of these things and pushing them up and i think because of how unimportant it is to the movie people uh to the to the movie houses and the original producers of the films or maybe there's a statute of limitations because these films are so old that no one really takes them down they're, they're up there um i remember a long time ago yeah, I guess Argento is still being kind of policed on YouTube. Yeah. I remember um, before DVDs came into the picture, and it was still VHS and letter and um, Laserdisc, that um, there was some kind of weird loophole in the law where <clears throat> if a film was released in outside of the United States in a particular version, and that version was never released in the United States, uh, you could not get in trouble for duplicating it and selling the duplication. So let's say you had a copy of um, Argento's uh, Inferno or um, Argento's Tenebrae from a Japanese Laserdisc. You could copy that onto VHS and sell it for $10, $15. And there were a lot of places, not a lot, but there were several places that would do that. One of them was called The Video Search of Miami, I think. Um, I can't remember the other ones. But that was how I got uh, my first copy of Four Flies on Grey Velvet because that was the one film that I had been looking for for so long. So I kind of see this YouTube situation as kind of the same thing where the it's partly that and it's partly that people really don't give a shit as much um, about these films. Like they're not really kind of losing money. Um, and there you know, are so many movies that I never would have seen if they weren't on YouTube. Mm. 
I know. And, and I think that, you know, if you're into these films and you really want a better copy to watch on your home environment, then you'll pursue the DVD and you'll get it or the Blu-ray and you'll get it. So I don't think we're, that YouTube is really pulling, um, you know, sales away from say Synapse or Shameless because I think the people that really want these will get them. Um, but I just wanted to, to put that out there because um, these films are both easily accessible and you should definitely watch them before listening to us talk about them because I'm going to spoil Bloodstained Butterfly pretty quickly. Um, so, Bloodstained Butterfly is from 1971. Um, by all accounts, it is a classic giallo uh, with a few exceptions. It was directed by Ducio Tassari, uh, who had bo box office success in 1965 with two spaghetti westerns, A Pistol for Ringo and The Return of Ringo. Both, oh, of, nice. those, both of those films were scored by Ennio Morricone, uh, Tassari wrote and directed them, and they both star our friend Butthole Face, Naves Navarro. So, um, anybody interested in um, kind of the backstory of this director, go check that out. Um, I've, I'm not a spaghetti western person, not that I wouldn't like them, it's just that I just haven't spent any time watching them, other than the couple of the Clint Eastwood ones that were really famous. Um, in addition to this, uh, Tassari is credited with one more giallo called Leumo Senza Memoria, uh, which I think translates into The Man Without a Memory. That's what, That's what she said. The Man Without a Memory, and it was released in the U.S. as The Puzzle. Um, and um, this is very important that he has another um, jolly in his repertoire because uh, for the longest time this uh, this film was scoring at 75 points on my website and once I realized that he actually did have more than one uh, the film bumped itself up to 80 with a five-point bonus for uh, re the repeat offender bonus as I like to call it um, we'll talk about the score a little bit later because Jason uh, who's listening live has brought up a couple of points that may be in contention. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, the film was released in Italy on September the 10th of 1971. And just to give you some context, um, Iguana with the Tongue of Fire came out in August. The Fifth Chord came out in August. Bay of Blood came out in September. This came out in September. Short Night of Glass Dolls came out in October. Death Walks on High Heels came out in November, and Four Flies on Gray Velvet came out in December. So, Fucking hell, dude. It's just <sighs> one after the next, after the next, after the next. And it, it was clear that at this point, you know, the Italian audiences were eating these films up as quickly as they could be produced. So um, this particular film, Bloodstained Butterfly, was written by Tassari, uh, and also co-written Gianfranco Clarici, who wrote Don't Torture a Duckling with Fulci, and he also wrote the screenplay for Cannibal Holocaust. Um, the film has got an uncredited writer of Edgar Wallace, if you look it up in IMDb, so I'm assuming that there are probably aspects of this story that come from one of his uh, crime novels. Maybe you guys will What's figure that out. Was this a co-production with anyone in Germany? Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't 
I don't remember seeing that when I looked it up. Because I remember uh, Rialto films and stuff, whenever they could throw Edgar Wallace's name on something. Yes. <laughs> it was like a big selling point kind of thing. It lended a lot of clout. Um, let's see. Filming locations. Uh, Italy. No, it looks like it's all Italy. Milan, Lombardia, or Lombardia. Um, the film has a few recognizable Jolly actors that we've seen before. The character of Maria Marchi is played by Ida Gali, who is known as Evelyn Stewart to most people. Uh, she was in Case of the Scorpion's Tale, and she was um, in Knife of Ice. Uh, she was in the one we just watched a couple weeks ago with uh, Carol Baker. She was the wife when the guy got stabbed on the roof by uh, or on the patio by Braun from Four Flies. Was that her? No, or I don't think from, so. Yeah, from Cat of Ninetales. Yeah. Uh, she was the girl that Carol Baker was like, it turned out that they were lovers or whatever. And then the guy from Cat of Nine Tails came in and killed her. Oh, no, I don't think that's the same. No, different, different actress. Really? The, the girl who played, um, the girl who played, uh, Jean's wife. What movie so, was that? So we were talking about So Sweet, So Perverse, right? And that was Carol Baker, and she was in a, she was in a lesbian affair with the, with the brown-haired woman who was married to the guy that they killed for his yeah. insurance money. Yeah, so this is a different actress. She was, if you remember Case of the Scorpion's Tale, she was at the very beginning, the girl whose husband died in the plane crash, and she got all the money. And she went to Greece to get to uh, cash in the insurance, and then she gets killed halfway through the film. Um, and she was also the sister in Knife of Ice, who gets killed uh, yeah. pretty pretty early on in the film. So um, besides her, we have um, Gunther Stoll, who plays the attorney in this film, and he was Solange's father in the What Have You Done to Solange. And then we also have uh, Silvano Tranquilli, who plays the inspector in this film. And he was in Black Belly the Tarantula as um, Barbara Boucher's husband. Uh, he was also in So Sweet, So Dead as one of the, one of the husbands who, whose wife was having an affair who ends up getting killed because that's the killer's MO. Um, what else can I tell you? The music composed by Gianni Ferrio. Uh, lesser known uh, than you know the the three big guys that we know of jolly composers, but pretty prolific anyway. Uh, he composed "Death Walks at Midnight," um, and the music of the film is built around this Tchaikovsky piano concerto in B flat minor, um, and it's played during the opening credits, and then it comes in throughout the film. But the opening credit sequence is really cool in this film. They take a stencil of the butterfly. And they put it over the camera lens and they show this woman driving in her car uh, as the Tchaikovsky piano concerto plays. Um, and they, they do all of the, uh, they roll all the credits through that. And eventually the music um, switches over from the classical interpretation of the piece to like this jazzy version 
um, which I, I would assume was was an augmentation by uh, Ferio, the composer of the of the film, and that plays uh, throughout. So after this um, really fun and interesting opening credit sequence, we have um, some Italian that comes up on the screen, scrolls up as this female who arrives at her house and parks her car and goes into the house. Uh, they quickly show newspapers and uh, milk that had been delivered to her house that are sitting outside the door. And we get this scrolling text that I tried to push through Google Translate. Um, I really should have gotten in touch um, with our Italian correspondent to see if he could translate it for us. But what I got out of it was the past does not exist because it already had even the future is yet to come. Therefore, there is only the present, but which it can be composed of past and future. And something else about a meeting place. But again, this is Google, and who the hell knows how accurate that is. So it, it, it doesn't really have anything to do with anything. It's just it's just some sort of abstract philosophical sentences. That, that might actually have screen. been from the Edgar Wallace stuff. Oh, okay. That's how they used to say that Edgar Allan Poe with the Roger Corman movies, they would mm -hmm. just take a quote from Edgar Allan Poe and put it at the beginning of the movie. And then all of a sudden it's an Edgar Allan Poe. Da, 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 da. But right. Jason <laughs> said here that he's not sure, but he thinks um, based on the ideas from Wallace's, the four just men series that that's probably what this is based on, but that's like super spoiler. So, oh, okay. That's cool. Awesome, Jason. I'm glad we have you to help yeah, us with these references. Got fucking, someone's got to quality control this fucking show. I'm telling you. <laughs> so uh, the woman goes into her house. She takes off her wig. She takes this humongous swig of J&B, and she makes this crazy face like, oh, my God, it's so strong. And then Which she is changes. Finally, someone finally has a face that one should have after taking a sip of J and B. Well, and the funny part is that you know you can't have a happy medium. You either have people who just drink it like it's water, or you have this woman who makes the face like somebody just punched her in the in the gut, and like so exaggerated. Um, anyway, she goes up and changes the date on the coolest calendar I've ever seen. I don't know if you noticed that. It's I like did. A bunch of circles. That thing is so awesome. I want one. And uh, she goes off to bed. I guess she's going off to bed now. I mean, it's it's daytime. I don't know if she's just arriving home from from being away for a while. And we we'll find out later in the movie that she is a traveler. So, um, what is interesting about this next part is that it really feels like a soap opera. Um, the theme. The, the theme that's played in the next part of the film um, through this montage that they start, it sounds like the Young and the Restless theme song, at least a little bit. It's got that da, 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 like that little piano thing. And while that music is playing, we have this montage of all the characters in their various elements and their names, their character names are on the screen. Now, the first time I ever saw this, I just thought the credits were still rolling and I didn't pay any attention. That's what I thought. <laughs> and it's, so I'm, I'm like, but wait a minute, it already said directed by, so what is this? So I go back and look at it again. Um, and I think that, you know, Tasari realized that he was gonna be introducing us to a very complicated storyline, or at least an elaborate one with lots of characters and kind of like um, uh, 
I don't know if this is typical of other detective uh, thriller films or uh, maybe novels where they just introduce the cast of characters at the very beginning. Um, that's what they do here. So we have Marta Clarici, who's the woman that we were just talking about. And we have uh, Francois. And I thought Francois was a boy's name, but whatever. Francois Pigeot, who's the girl who gets murdered eventually. Uh, we have Sarah Maki, um, uh, who is the young um, friend of Francois. We have Maria Maki, uh, who's Sarah's mother. We have Alessandro Maki, who is the father. Then we have um, Guilo Cordaro. He's the lawyer. Uh, we have Giorgio, who's the piano player. I don't know if he's a student or if he's just a musician. Uh, we have this guy with this huge name, Irprando Villarosa Venosta, who is Giorgio's father, and Diamante, who's Giorgio's mother. And um, some of these characters play a very minor role in the movie, um, but they're obviously thrown in in the beginning because... Um, this is a giallo, and we want people to try and figure out who the killer is. Um, and by throwing out all of these suspects, we have certainly a lot of people to think about. Um, so after this is all done, uh, we go to the big establishing scene. And this, this scene is very crucial. Uh, it's, it's, it's important uh, if you're interested in really getting uh, to understand the film to go back and watch the scene a couple times. Um, like many Jolly, uh, there's there's a there's a scene that establishes what's going to happen for the rest of the film. In, in *Bird with the Crystal Plumage*, it's the the scene in the art gallery, um, as an example. In this particular scene, it is the the rainstorm in the park with the two children playing hide and seek in their bright yellow raincoats. Not a coincidence. And um, all of a sudden, this woman comes rolling down the hill. And she's dead. Um, and immediately after um, this woman shows up, um, we see the authorities start to gather. A woman runs off and you know calls the calls the authorities, and the cops start to come. And that all of that action is is ju juxtaposed with this figure who's shown leaving the park, and he's wearing this derby and a raincoat and various people are spotting him, but you never see his face. There's a, a couple in a car that are getting it on and they see him. There's a guy holding balloons that sees him. And then there's a man who looked out his window to see him jump over the wall. Um, and so I, when, and you go, when I go back and watch this a second and third time, I think it's really important to start thinking about where, where and what all the people that we were introduced in the beginning were doing in this particular part of the of the timeline um what they may have been doing you know who was where and and so we're going to find out everything about who who was where during this particular moment when this crime was committed over the next say 50 minutes or so um and so now of course we have a crime committed we have police uh that are on um that are on the scene we have um we have uh, Alessandro who shows up on TV. His wife and his daughter are at home. Um, and Giorgio, the piano player, is out walking around. He shows up at the scene at one point um, and then runs away again. 
And we find out eventually that the victim is Francois, who is Sarah's friend. So that's Sarah Maki. Sarah, the daughter of Alessandro, who is the TV reporter. Um, so now the film jumps full force into this crime scene investigation, um, eyewitness accounts and forensics. And they, they you know, the, the, the film clearly had a big budget. Um, they spent a lot of money with all of these, this hardware and all of these uh, pieces of scientific gear to um, really drive home the crime scene investigation aspect of this. Um, and it's, you know, it's very unlike um, at this point, um, it, the way that the film moves forward, it's not like your typical Jolly. Um, in most cases, uh, you would have an amateur detective who really didn't have all of this um, technical and scientific um, equipment at his disposal at, at his disposal to be able to help solve this crime um so in 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 order to fill up the gap in in all of that most jolly will give you a few more or at least one or two more murders before things start to heat up into figuring out who it is um but in this particular case they spent a lot of time on the investigation uh i think that you know, for the most part, the the middle part of the movie was um, was pretty fast paced. It was easy to to keep up with it. Uh, it didn't bore me too much. I didn't uh, find myself looking at the ceiling or my watch or whatever. Um, but we eventually get to a courtroom drama, which was interesting, I think, for me because I, I've never seen a courtroom drama played out um, in a jolly before, which was fun in a jalo. Sorry, yeah, me neither. Um, now, meanwhile, before all of this starts with the um, with the with the court investigation or the court uh, court case, uh, I think it's clear that the film is trying to point people in the direction of um, of uh, what's his name, the piano player, Giorgio, um, because if you think about it, the girl who got killed was found uh, with this record. Of the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto, and it they they hypothesized that she was bringing it as a gift to give to someone. And who do we know who's interested in classical music? Ta-da! So um, that was kind of an easy pointer. But they really aren't, you know, following that lead. They end up following a lead where the woman who was in the car um, went to her friend's house and watched TV. And when she watched the TV, she saw. Alessandro on TV and said, Hey, that's the guy that I saw in the woods, uh, in the park. And so she tells the police and the police bring him in. And then we have, um, an, a 25 minutes worth of courtroom drama, which I think is a pretty extended amount of time for a Yeah. Um, and basically the prosecution makes a case. They eventually convict Alessandro to life in prison based on the fact that they found blood on his shirt and that blood, matches the blood type that of Francois, the girl. And so we've got this thing where uh, this is a really, really um, extreme example of the one Jalo score criteria called mistaken identity. Um, in most cases, the um, mistaken identity is something that happens for maybe a few minutes where they apprehend somebody and they go to jail, but then another killing happens and the, 
the audience kind of knows that you know something else is going to happen here. Um, in this particular case, um, Alessandro is in jail for quite a while, and the the film kind of gets to a point where it's kind of ended its first you know first first half or its first stage. But being a jolly, um, being a jalo, I got to stop with trying to figure out when to use one versus the other. It's <laughs> driving me insane. Being a jalo, um, there's obviously a lot more to this. And so, right after the um, right after the scene where the newspapers are showing that Alessandro has been sentenced to life in prison, there's two uh, sex scenes, and they're both in Italian. I don't know why all of a sudden that particular part of the film in my copy went to Italian, um, but we see that um, uh, Alessandro's lawyer is having an affair with his wife. And we see that uh, Giorgio is getting it on with Alessandro's daughter, Sarah. Um, but uh, but uh, Giorgio's got this weird thing going on. He's like, he seems to have some kind of attitude problem. Like he's getting it on I with probably- I couldn't tell if he was raping her. Cause she was like crying and it looked like she kept trying to push him off, but it was yeah. weird. Yeah, it was a little weird. Like I couldn't. I mean, clearly she's probably the best-looking girl in the film, and um, you know he just seems to be acting weird about the the whole thing, and we don't really know why. Um, he, he looked like he was just as distraught as she was, so I don't know if he's got some. You know, you don't you you don't know if he's got this guilt thing going on or whether he's got some other problem. Um, and before we leave. Um, before we go too far, um, Jason is mentioning that Francois is a boy's name, but Francois with an E on the end is the feminine form. Francois. Uh, Francois. Um, and they, they do say it with the S on the end in the film. So I just thought it was a translation issue where, you know, people say Grand Prix instead of Grand Prix, but um, <laughs> apparently they're pronouncing it properly. So thanks for that, Jason. Um, don't think of me as quality control. Think of me as a know-it-all with virtually no filter. <laughs> Wasn't that the same? That's kind of like the same thing, right? I mean, one way or the other, <laughs> it's quality control. Um, so this is the part of the film where things are just kind of, you know, everybody's kind of crawled off into their own little corner to kind of take a break, take a breather, and regroup. Um, and that is when things start to go a little weird because we have another woman that's killed. Um, and it, the way that they filmed it and set it up and edited it, it looks like the lawyer did it, but um, they just made it look that way to, to, to now make you try to figure out, well, who is the person who's doing this if it's not Alessandro? Um, yeah. And, you know, the lawyer, it, he is probably the most despicable, creepy bastard in any of these films because he gets it on Fuck with yeah. the he gets it on with the with the wife, and then gets it on with the daughter in almost kind of like a forced um, sexual encounter, and then basically just tells the wife that he's a man, and sometimes men, you know, need to get like it on. Young thing. Yeah, men like young things. That's what it was. And it's like insane, absolutely insane. He was just showing her judo. It's cool. <laughs> yeah, that was great. That was the best excuse. I got to try that one next time. Yeah, judo. We're working on some judo. 
Um, <laughs> so the next time then, you get walked in on, that's that's hysterical. The the next scene we see the woman who was in the opening scene, the woman who had the two kids, she ends up getting killed. And uh, you know, it's it's important to talk about the fact that this film, once again, um, it really doesn't spend any time orchestrating the murders at all. Um, the only reason why we know that uh, Francois has been stabbed is because they recreate the scene and they do it in flashbacks. But when she actually shows up in the movie, she's already rolled down the hill and she's dead. Um, the hooker is shows up dead, like she's alive, and then the next scene she's dead. And this woman who gets killed in the park, all you see is uh, the glove over her mouth. And then the next scene is a newspaper heading that says she's been killed in the park. So um, basically, uh, we get to the end of the of this movie. Um, so like I said, they, they spent a lot of time on the opening scene, establishing the characters and the courtroom drama. Um, they left the rest of the movie, probably about 40 minutes to kind of tie up all the stuff that was going on. This Marta Clarici, who's the woman we see in the very beginning, um, who drives in, um, she returns. And it turns out that uh, there, there's a couple of clues. Like there's a scene where Alessandro buys this um, present for her. I guess it's some lingerie. And he puts it in a, a red uh, wrapped up box. And then you see her walking through the airport with that box with her friend. Um, when she comes back and she's finally back in town, they bring her into court and she's a witness for the defense. And she um, is able to give Alessandro an alibi. And she also confirms that her blood type is the same as Francois, which is B negative. And um, the blood that was on Alessandro's coat can easily just as be ju be just as easily attributed to her as it is to the girl who was killed so they release Alessandro and um, They send him back home and he gets a phone call mentions something about blackmail and goes out to uh, Find out or meet up with the person who calls him and this is the point in the film where I stopped liking the film um, I liked it all the way up to this point <laughs> I thought everything was really well done. I really liked the characters and the music and all the scenes. And then we have this final scene where we're finally going to find out what the fuck happened and who did what and who's guilty and who isn't. And it doesn't make any sense. Like even by terrible, non-logical, nonsensical, giallo standards, this ending, at least to me, unless somebody wants to explain it to me or if you know something that I don't know, creep. First of all, the whole butterfly thing um barely entered into it um there's yeah. this this little piece of jewelry that uh giorgio um focuses in on in some some sort of like shop um and then later on he's kind of used that that shop is used again as a way for the shop owner to say oh yeah i sold a switchblade to two different people and the one guy lives right next door so the cops are trying to kind of go after him. They think that maybe he's involved now with this thing. And he, the cops go into this one room or this one location and he walks out the other way and we never see the cops again. The cops have nothing to do with the, with the investigation as far as I remember. 
Um, so Giorgio, uh, or so um, Alessandro goes out to meet up with this quote-unquote blackmailer, and it's Giorgio. And Giorgio explains that, and you know, here's where the spoilers come in, everybody, if you're still listening to this rambling. Um, Alessandro did kill Francois, and Giorgio killed the other two in order to get him out of jail or to to divert suspicion away or to make it seem like Alessandro was innocent. And I guess there was some sort of an agreement between the two of them. Uh, but what the fuck that agreement even means or what it is, I have no idea. What is, wait, who had an agreement? France, I, I'm sorry, Alessandro and Giorgio had some sort of an agreement that Giorgio would go and kill a couple of people so that Alessandro would um, walk free after he had been convicted. I don't think they had an agreement. I just think he did that so Alessandro could come out so he could kill Alessandro. Okay. So like it was, was just the, like a sheer revenge thing. So the blackmail thing was just a ruse to get Alessandro out there? Yeah, so he could kill him. Okay, because I'm thinking this guy is nobility. He doesn't need to blackmail anybody. He doesn't, he doesn't need money. And then he goes and says that Francoise was his girlfriend and that he loved her. Um, and so I'm thinking that, you know, they've got this some There's sort of prearranged agreement. Oh, there we go. I'm thinking that they have some sort of prearranged agreement. Um because of the of the way that the, you know the way that he talks about you know what he did at the end but so so what you're saying creep and then this makes more sense obviously is that um giorgio uh knew that alessandro killed um francois he he saw him kill her okay was was that the final flashback? Was that from the point of view of Giorgio? Him, he was in the park and he saw Alessandro kill her, or he just ended up. I seeing... guess because she she was going to take him that record, so right. they were supposed to meet up. Okay, and I guess he saw her, and um, Jason said there wasn't an agreement. Giorgio wanted to kill Alessandro himself since he watched Alessandro kill his woman. Um, and I'll get to your other comment question in a second, Jason, because that's epic. <laughs> yeah, I'm um, reading that now. But yeah. <laughs> okay, so I just totally, um, I misunderstood the end then. I thought that, you know, as which is typical in these um, types of films where the two people that really don't know each other end up knowing each other and they had some sort of an agreement. And I thought that's where this film was going. But... Um, that makes a lot more sense. So basically, Giorgio sees Alessandro kill his girlfriend, and he kills two more girls just so Alessandro will get released from jail so that he can kill him himself, which is yeah. kind of silly. But okay. And that makes the ending a lot more interesting, or at least understandable. Yeah. Um, Um, Jason's question, just so everybody knows, he says, who's the bigger bastard, the lawyer who I'm sure was trying to rape the daughter 
or Carlo from Strip Nude? And oh, my answer to this question I think is how lawyer. dare you, sir? Yeah, Carlo is a hero. Yeah. Carlo is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Carlo has awesome swim trunks. He's a total jerk. He says it like it is. And he can strangle people whenever he feels like it and then have sex with them later. And it's totally cool. But this guy is a lawyer. Well, and Carlo tries to have anal with Edwidge. So that's, I mean, right then and there, that's the end of the discussion, right? I mean, anybody with the balls to try to get Edwidge into a, into that position, you know. Yeah. There, there were a couple things about this movie that um, I wanted to talk about. And the fact that you got confused with this is good because I'm completely confused on a couple things on Bloodstained Shadow, which we'll get to in a second. <laughs> so hopefully that one you got a lot better. Um, but the whole thing with um, the police investigation in the beginning and all of the scientific equipment and then the courtroom thing, like... <clears throat> At least until 71, which I'm pretty sure before that we had never seen anything like that in one of these movies. Right. And especially the courtroom, because, I mean, I just realized when I was watching it that we've seen so many of these movies, and this is the first time I've ever seen what an Italian court looks like. Right. And that's shocking. And I'm like, they look ridiculous. But it's because we've never seen it before. You know what I'm saying? Well, and it would and be just like the whole. It would be it would be interesting to find out if that really represented what was done in reality in in court cases in Italy at that time, or if it was an exaggeration. Yeah, um, there were just a couple things that um, were weird for me. Um, I don't know if you noticed it, but they had a lot of really strange ways to get from one scene to the other. Like people would be having like a totally in-depth conversation about something, and then they would just say something stupid at the end of it, and it would transition into the next scene. So, like when Carlo, or not Carlo, but Giorgio and um, the daughter are walking, it's this really great shot where they're really far apart and they're like barely talking, and they can still hear each other. Yeah, talking about something totally important, and he's like, "Look at this church." <laughs> to the next scene. What? And then him and his dad, <laughs> him and his dad argue, and he goes another whiskey. <laughs> and then when, after they have sex, she's like, "You have another girl, haven't you?" <laughs> Bye. I, I'll call. Yeah. Cut. Right. <laughs> there were just all of these really weird things. I was like, "What the fuck is going on here?" But. Um, <laughs> Well, that reminds me of a scene where they asked that one guy, what that one eyewitness guy, and he says something like, "It was a raincoat. I mean, a, a coat. I mean, it was a raincoat. I mean, you know." And then, <laughs> then they cut. It it's so like, weird. I don't know what the hell was going on. Yeah, but, maybe um, it was just so maybe that it was was weird. bad, like English translation or something. I don't yeah, know. I'm hoping that's what it was. But do you remember when he was when the cop was first interviewing the girl who said she saw him in the park, and he was just sitting there turning a lamp off and on? Yeah, <laughs> yep. Like I didn't. I thought that was like he was like trying to like tr trip her up or something. 
Uh, and then I'm like, wait a second. It seems like, like, where were you on the night of da 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 da? But the light wasn't shining on her. He was just turning the light off and on. Um, but I, did you notice that scene too? Where? Um, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say I thought maybe that was just the them trying to do some quirky stuff, like to you know, like the like that running gag with the coffee. You know, every time he brought the coffee in, there was something wrong with it. Yeah. And maybe that light thing, like, you know, the, these cops are trying to be as serious as possible, but all this weird stuff is going on. And, you know, maybe it's just that that little bit of humor um, and, you know, thrown in just to kind of make it not so serious. But, I mean, compared to the stuff that, you know, we see in, say, you know, Death Walks on High Heels with the guy who vomited out the window and, the, and, and hit, the, oh. hit the cop on the head. Uh, you know, the gag with the cigar, like he, he rolls this cigar or whatever, or gets it ready to smoke. And the guy tries to light it and he gets mad at him. He's like, no, this is way too strong. <laughs> so at the time he's in his office, he's holding the cigar, but it's not lit. And he's drinking the shit coffee. And like <laughs> that whole thing was really endearing, but it just kind of sucked because not only did it not go anywhere, but then they just weren't in the movie anymore. Yeah, they were gone. And the pacing of this was really weird because he was in jail until about two-thirds of the way through the movie. The first 30 minutes was the investigation, and then the second 30 minutes was like this, just this weird who's sleeping with who and whose motives are what. And then right. the last half of the movie probably where – or the last third of the movie where you fell off of it was just like – them trying to put all the pieces back together. But when yeah. he got home, I mean, when, like uh, I, I really did like all of that up until the point where Alessandro drives out to that old house and they have that kind of yeah. final confrontation. I, I liked all of what led up to there. I just was because of the way that I interpreted the ending. I was, I was kind of thrown off and it was my own kind of, um, naivete i guess is the right word that i didn't understand well, think about some of the stuff like so that girl was the one who fingered him like the girl who was in the car she's like that's him i know the guy right she got and it then right. they do the thing then they're like okay so you wear glasses let's put a bunch of people up here you don't know who the fuck it is right and it's just so weird because if she had never seen him they probably never would have caught on that he was even involved but then the lawyer seemed like he was trying to get him to go to jail so he could be with the wife. Right. But then the lawyer seemed like he was actually trying. I don't know. It was just really weird. But um, when he got home and they were having that dinner, did you notice that um, that 70s show shot where like they put a camera on a lazy Susan in the middle of the table? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like spinning around to each one of them. That was yep. so rad. Was that like, was a oh, very, man. yeah, that was a very awkward scene for sure. Because like everybody knows something that's going on with some somebody else, and they don't know uh, who knows what. Yeah, it was great. That was really and good. And they have like one of my favorite telephones in the world. So all of that bit of the movie is that the great. one with the dial um, on the bottom. Oh my god, those are so cool! I saw yeah. them on. Um, I think I could you could get them on Etsy. So I might actually do that. That's cool. Um, Jason says it actually does. Mainland Europe follows what is known as the magistral system. Um, as opposed to the adversarial system and the magisterial, that's like with a magistrate thing. Um, right. The judge is particularly a part of, part of the 
Oh, part of the prosecution. Yeah. Practic practically part um, of the prosecution. Yeah. Yeah. At least that's what I picked up from the assorted true crime novels taking place from the continent I've read, including Monster of Florence. Isn't that something else? Or is that his book? I'm confused now. Is that, is that whose book? <laughs> Jason's. Um, okay, so um, real quick, let me just get off of that before I accidentally throw somebody into it. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that was that movie. Yay. <laughs> that <was laughs> That's what we call a smooth transition. Yeah. Well, I think, I think yeah, okay, I, think the, so. I think the thing that Jason was trying to say was that it was weird that, you know, um, there was a lot of emphasis on everybody in that courtroom drama was basically pushing for on the side of the prosecution. And it, and it, yeah. It, and Alessandro needed his lawyer to help him. It, it, if he didn't have all weird old ladies in there, if he didn't have any representation, he probably would have gone right to jail without very much of a fair trial. So, yeah. Um, yeah um, so before we go out of this movie, I forgot to talk about the score and you have to help me on this because uh, Jason brought up some good points and the score is currently sitting at 80 points, um, which is, Pretty much a classic giallo. Um, however, there may be some discrepancies. Now, the one and only time that I saw gloves, I thought they were black. But Jason kind of hinted that he thought they were brown. Um, I think there's two gloves. I The I only gloves that. I remember seeing are the ones where the girl, the third murder, the girl running through the park, she has the gloves in front of her, over her mouth. And then another glove comes in a close-up with a knife in it. And I think those are the ones that are brown. Alessandro had brown gloves when he killed the first girl who was wearing brown gloves. Mm, okay. So that's the first I think thing. there were black gloves in the movie. I okay. think the other guy had black I'll gloves. Go back and, I'll go back and look when we're doing the second film and double-check. Yeah. The other one was... Um, I just assumed during the flashback when they were back in court to try to get Alessandro out when he was talking about his girlfriend and that scene where he starts taking pictures of her and the other girl uh, in their lingerie. I just assumed that a three-way was going to ensue at one point or another. And yeah. so then I gave the film a point for the gay lesbian um, signature because I figured that that was um, what was going on with the three of them. Yeah, and to be fair, I'm pretty sure the hooker that the lawyer met at the gas station was a man. <laughs> that's just me. It looked like a man. <laughs> that's really true. All right, well, I'll go back, and if I, if I need to take the black gloves off, then we'll be back down to a 75. 75 really feels like the right score for this film because of how much the it's police very are involved. Different. And it's not very stylish from a from a murder set piece kind of situation, but yeah. then again, I mean that's what that's what the scoring thing is all about. You know, you have films like um, you have films that are considered to be pretty classic um, that only score in the '60s, like Blood and Black Lace or um, Knife of Ice. Or Basically, any movie I like scores kind of low for some reason. 
<laughs> well, no, Sister Versala got a 70, so. Jason yeah. says he totally missed that scene, curse you, YouTube. What scene are you talking about? Are you talking about the two chicks and the camera? That was pretty hot. I was hoping that was going to go somewhere. Yeah. <clears throat> I was hoping. But, um, <laughs> it looked like the girl who was the friend, it looked like that girl from... It looked like one of the girls from Red Queen, but I can't be sure about that. It looked like a girl that should have been in the movie a lot more. Right. With a lot less on. Right. Boom. I said. Oh, and what what about that rooftop that they had at the end where Sarah is like cleaning out this pool and um that looked really awesome. Like I wanted to live there for sure. That pool they, looked a little shit, but that was pretty awesome. I thought the pool looked cool because it, it was just one big deep end. It wasn't. <laughs> there was no shallow end at all. It was just a, it big, had a shower right there. Oh, yeah. good stuff, man. All right. So, um, yeah, I recommend it. Yep. I mean, clearly, I think that this film is a little bit of an odd man out uh, when you compare it to all the films that came out right around before and after it because this one is – it's a little different. It seems to have a, a bigger budget. I think that Tassari probably got a lot of extra money because of how successful he was with his spaghetti westerns. Um, and uh, the film is really focuses more on solving the the crime than the the passion and the um, the the emotional aspects of of the person committing the crime. Um, but it still is uh, pretty classic and certainly recommended. Uh, recommended watching. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot. I definitely think everyone should see it. It is um, quite different, and I think that's really the only reason why you should watch it. Um, like, it's not like, oh, this is better than this or better than that. It's because this is so different, which is what makes me think it's something that people should watch. Yeah, agreed. Although that beginning thing with the names of everybody that confused the shit out of me. And then by the time people were showing up in the movie, I still didn't know who the fuck they were. Right. And the that woman, the, 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 the woman who was the, the two people who played the mother and father of Giorgio, they really had nothing to do with the film at all. The mom was in one scene. Yeah. But you and know, again, I think, you know, they just introduced these people at the beginning no saying, hello. yeah. All right. So that was what happens when you get a bloodstained butterfly. Now let's see what happens when your shadow gets bloodstained. <laughs> and um, so I'm going to be talking to you guys about the bloodstained shadow. And it was also released as Only Blackness, which is an awful title. <laughs> um, uh, it was a, it's a film from 1978 directed by Antonio Bito. Um, let me see here. Let me give you the plot according to Wikipedia. Hmm. A mysterious stranger kills a young girl. Young Stefano returns home to Venice to visit his brother, a priest with several enemies. Wait, did you As say a priest? Begins, 
Yeah, I uh, did. All right. As people movie, begin dying, movie's Steph over. No tries to solve the mystery while having an affair with a local woman. That's a shit plot. Yeah. I should go on Wikipedia and change that. Okay. <laughs> so let, let me give you the skivvy here on this movie. First off, I really think that this movie was someone going, I want to make a movie that's like House of Laughing Windows and <laughs> Don't Torture a Duckling. Let's let's make this happen, folks. Right. Because this movie starts off, like, I kid you not, almost exactly like House of Laughing Windows. And right. it has the guy from House of Laughing Windows. And it even has the scene where when he gets off the boat or the train or whatever the fuck he's getting off of, he walks up and he's met there by somebody and they're talking and then they go somewhere. It's like, it almost felt like, here, let's take this shot for shot. Let's do this. So basically, this dude, his name is Stefano. Or is that right? Yeah, yeah and his, his name is Stefano in both films. Oh, my God. That's so lame. I know. <laughs> <laughs> the only difference um, is he has, a, he has a beard in the Laughing Windows. That's the only difference. That's what it is because he looks like a weird little kid. So basically, yeah. in this movie, Stefano plays the guy that's never met a turtleneck that he didn't like. Okay? <laughs> that's <just laughs> how it's going to go. And... um. He comes to some weird little village in the middle of nowhere. And just so everyone knows right off the bat, if you haven't heard the House of Laughing Windows episode, I really don't like that movie. I think it's really overrated. and I think it's kind of crap. So going into this, I was a little afraid right off the bat. Okay. Um, so he goes and meets this guy named um, Don Paolo, who is the Padre played by Craig Hill, which sounds like a fake name if I've ever heard one. <laughs> and um, that's actually his brother. And he's, um, Stefano is a professor, and he just wants to chill the fuck out for a little bit, kind of clear his head, because he has these weird little issues that only happen um, in the middle of the movie, not really in the beginning and not really at the end, but... He has these weird flashbacks. Um, so, but honestly, as we go through this movie, it just screams shallow score. So, I'm sure this one got a lot of points for weird shit. Um, <laughs> but so he goes and he meets the priest, and they're chatting it up, and he's gonna kind of hang out. He dug on the chick he met on the train, who is. Uh, an interior decorator, and she was in this town just to get away from shit. It's Venice, right? Is that yeah. what it's supposed to be? But it looks very rural. It doesn't look like Venice. It's 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 Venice, but it's not like I don't think where they are is Venice because they keep talking about how the girl um, who comes over uh, that he meets on the train, how that girl is in Venice. And then he travels to Venice to like I, I, I really didn't understand it. I think where where that little village was. I, I think where that little village was, where Paolo and Stefano were living in that church. I think it was some sort of separate, maybe island or something that's not in the, in the center of of the Venice area, but very close yeah. to it. So, well. Keep in mind that this is 1978. This is after the big boom. Um, 
this is more of a nostalgia piece at this time than anything else already. And one of the things, before I get too far ahead of myself here, one of the things that I thought was super fucking neat is the credits in this movie are set up like the Friday the 13th credits. And I don't know if it was like released in America after Friday the 13th came out. Mm, yeah. And so they mirrored the thing with just the black screen and there's a name here, a name here, a name there, a name here, a name here, a name there. Um, but that's how Friday the 13th did their credits for the, the first eight movies. Well, that and that was the weird part for me because I have this on DVD um, and the credits um, on the DVD, they just show up over top of the picture of the girl laying on the on the grass but the version yeah. that i had which was a version that i had downloaded off the internet um <clears throat> it when it went to the title screen it showed like a german translated version of the title and then it went mm -hmm. all black and then it did all the the credits and then there was a yeah that's long, what i saw and there was a long pause while there was no credits at all and we were just listening to the music and then they went and started the film up again. So I'm not sure. And also, when the girl's laying in the grass, yeah, she's laying in the grass for a long time and nothing's on the screen at all. Like we're yeah. talking like 30 seconds of yep. just a static image of her laying there. Right. Um, so I don't know if this was released in America after that or not, but uh, I wonder if they so need to extend the DVD running time. Version, in your DVD version, it doesn't do that opening credit sequence like that. No, it's no, and if, and if you watch it, on, if you watch it on YouTube, it, it's it doesn't do that black thing either. Oh wow! Okay. Well, there we go. So, um, anyway, we have this priest um, and his brother, and right away you see that the priest is very indecisive about things, and he almost spills one of his parishioners confessions to his brother right off the bat. And he's like, Oh shit, I got to watch what I'm doing here. <clears throat> and then while they're there and he's spending the night at his brother's little church house or whatever, there's screams from outside. And um, the priest looks out the window and sees someone being strangled outside. And by the time he gets downstairs, to run out there and see what's going on. He sees his like butler or whatever, like the guy that helps him out coming in from the rain. And he sees Stefano coming in from the rain. And when they go out there, there's no body at all. Now, the thing that makes Stefano kind of freak out is that he keeps having these flashbacks of a murder that took place in this village probably like 20 years prior i would think because in the flashbacks he's a little tiny kid so i don't know exactly how far long ago this was supposed to be um but then the next morning they do find the body and the body is of a medium in the town now it took me a while to realize that's who the fuck that was but um Earlier in the movie, there was a scene where the medium is sitting at a table with three other people from the village. And I'm assuming that you can't hear what she says or what they're saying, but I'm assuming she says you have to tell the spirits a secret or something. Mm. So it goes to the three people at the table and they like whisper something. And then she has a tape recorder um, behind this little curtain. And what she's been doing is tape recording um, 
people confessing shit and then she blackmails them, right. I guess is what's going on with her. Now, <clears throat> um, Paulo gets a note saying something to the extent of you fucking say anything and I'm going to get you motherfucker or something like that. So now Stefano and Paulo are like, we're going to solve this crime and blah, 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 blah. So they start playing amateur detective and um, Stefano runs into the girl he met on the train. who was the interior designer um, and takes her on a boat, gets her all scared. And then um, obviously they're soaking wet because they were inside a boat, not actually in the water, but this makes them need to start a fire and take their clothes off. And um, <laughs> it was like, as soon as she saw him out of that turtleneck, she knew it was, good to go yeah let's go and they end up having um a little torrid love affair on a very comfy looking rug might i say um and then one by one some brutal ass murders happen so the priest goes and talks to this guy who has a little boy in his house playing piano and this is the best thing in the world the priest accuses this dude of being a pedophile mm -hmm. and the guy gets mad and kicks him out. Well then <laughs> later that guy gets stabbed in the chest with like an ax spear or some fucked up medieval thing. So he's dead. And another note comes and says something else shitty to the priest. And then this chick who I think is the mom of the girl that Stefano's hooking up with. She's in a wheelchair and she hears someone breaking into the house trying to steal this picture of a little boy being attacked by a devil coming from the sky. It's a really weird painting. Well, the killer's like, well, the best way to deal with this is I need to put this bitch face first in the fireplace. <laughs> so it's completely brutal. And he throws her in the fireplace and she like burns to death. And she's completely and, uh, an invalid. She can't even get up out of her wheelchair. Like, wow. Like that was what I it, exposed her. <laughs> I was just like, holy shit. Like out of all the things you could have done, you know, I've seen blood. I know how to kill a woman in a wheelchair, but um, that was pretty hardcore. I was just like, fucking hell. It was. Um, let me see. And then, let me see who else was at the table. Oh, then the the doctor. Okay, the doctor. This was seriously probably my favorite scene of the whole movie. He gets knocked into the canal, <laughs> and so instead of like swimming to shore or something that a normal person would do, he sees a boat going by and he grabs this rope on the side of the boat. So the killer's like, oh, well, there's this beautiful speedboat here with the keys in it. I'll just follow him. <laughs> so then the killer's following this boat that doesn't know it's in a boat chase. And the guy's like hanging on on the side of the boat. And the killer just fucking smashes him. It was seriously one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Yeah. Very cool. That scene. It was very deep uh, red kind of oh, that end scene. There were a lot of little deep red things in here. Yeah. Like seeing the murder from the window. Yeah. It was like a reverse. Yeah. Of yeah. deep red kind of thing. Um, but anyhow, so then one of the strangest scenes ever, all the, and this is 
where movies like this kind of irritate me a little bit. Um, when you show a character, you introduce a character like an hour into the movie. So all of a sudden, this one lady who was one of the people at the um, seance right. opens the door to this room and there's this scary, weird guy laying in a bed and she has to feed him some porridge or some shit. And as soon as someone has to start feeding somebody <laughs> something, I'm checked out. I don't want to fucking watch this shit anymore because it's going to go down and it's going to make me sick. Yes. So, and, it, and it's always porridge. Or yeah, some, dude. It's something or cream corn or something fucking gross, right? <laughs> so then the guy's crying and she's like, oh, what? Is Miriam making you upset? And he's like, Ooh. And Miriam is this little, like, burnt fucking baby doll. So she gets up, and she's like, I'll, I'll take care of this. And she's like, Miriam, you're not going to be mean to my boy anymore. And she starts smacking the doll, and the guy's, like, getting all excited and happy. And she's like, I'm going to break your arms off. And he's like, oh, 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 I'm going to rip your legs off. Poke your eyes out. And you're never going to see my son again. And then he was like, whoa, mom, you went too far. <laughs> Seriously, just remembering one thing. But if you're gonna poke her fucking eyes out, I'm gonna get all upset again. So she's like, "Oh shit, I'm sorry. I had to teach her a lesson." You know, she's she's making you upset. So it was just like completely batshit crazy. <clears throat> and I was like, "Fuck." <laughs> well, anyway, so then um, the Stefano turtleneck guy, he's like, "Okay, I'm gonna figure this shit out." Let's look at this stuff. Ooh, look at that. Sorry. Got some eBay action going over here on the side. <laughs> um, so he's like, okay, let's look at these notes again. We're going to figure out what the fuck's going on here. And he's like, oh, look at the T on the typewriter. It's all fucked up. All these letters are typed. No big deal. Now, while this is going on, the priest has also found a severed goat head or lamb head in his like little box where he keeps his Jesus wafers. And he like played it off super cool. But then later, a statue of Jesus on the cross, which when it first was shown on the screen, I swore to God I thought it was a stormtrooper. And I had to like go back and go, what the fuck? Oh, it's Jesus. I thought it was a stormtrooper. <laughs> so the statue falls down, almost killing the priest, who is Paulo again. And so shit's like getting fucking real up in here. And so he's like... <clears throat> Uh, Stefano's like, okay, so we're going to deal with this. I'm going to get my girl out of here. I got to go back. The cops are handling this. I don't know what the fuck else to do. And because he's so smooth and he has a history of dropping luggage, he drops her luggage again and all these letters fall out of it. And he's like looking at it and he sees a letter with a fucked up T on it. And he's like, holy shit balls. Where did you get this? And she's like, you could fucking ask. And he's like, where did you get this? When did, when was it? And she's like, I don't know, just a little while ago. And he's like, okay, wait here. And he keeps leaving his girlfriend places like the worst dude in the world. Like there's someone out there murdering fucking people. And he keeps saying, okay, bitch, stay here. I'm going to be right back. You're going to be and, fine. And don't forget, like a day before, her mother was thrown headfirst into a fireplace. 
Yeah, and not only that, but someone broke in and stole a picture of the painting out of a picture book of paintings. That's right. That's while right. she was there. And so that was kind of scary. So she's very understanding and just lets him go off running. And so he breaks in, and guess what room he's in? He's in the psycho's room with the doll Miriam, but the psycho isn't there. And he finds the typewriter, and he's like, holy shit, okay, this is happening, blah, 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 blah. And then he opens the door, and guess who he finds? The dead mom. I don't know why, but the mom's dead now. For whatever reason. I guess we'll get to that later. Right. And then we cut to the church. And guess what? The crazy guy with who's Miriam's boyfriend or whatever is trying to kill the priest. And he fucking whacks the dude. And he's Christ. he's freaking out. He's like, oh, shit. Did I kill him? Is he dead? You mean the son? You mean the, the son? son? What did I? The boyfriend. <laughs> well, Miriam's boyfriend. Who's Miriam's Mir the doll. Uh-oh. Right, I forgot Miriam was the doll. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Miriam should have been a prime suspect in this whole fucking thing. Somebody screwed the pooch on that one. Well, anyway. Well, they needed to put a doll in this so that I could get like an extra point. But they fucking sure did, dude. That was awesome. Well, through all of this, through all of this insanity, this is when the movie starts getting a little sketchy for me. <laughs> Stefano figures out that... The person who killed the person years ago that he saw, well, first of all, he realizes that he saw that person get murdered and it wasn't just some weird vision he would always have, which I didn't even know was an issue. I thought from day one, we knew that little kid was him. Then we find out that um, the priest was the one who actually killed that girl, which makes me really upset because as I was watching this movie, I was about to say, oh my God, this is going to go in the file with Knife Vice on a movie where the priest didn't fucking kill the person. Right. Nope. Turns yeah. out the priest killed the first person. So then I think that person was related to the mom of the crazy guy. Is that correct? No. Because then I don't understand what her motive was. So she so killed the medium to get the information on who killed the girl years ago because she no. knew the medium. No, that was that was just kind of a a, a happy accident. So the way I understand it, <clears throat> the medium was blackmailing the midwife because she must have confessed to doing abortions in one of their um, seances. Yeah, and so the woman, the um, the midwife, killed the medium out in the um in the town square um but she knew that um that paulo was witness and then um paulo somehow she was able to get a hold of the tape recorder or i'm sorry the the somehow she was able to get a hold of this book I guess a Bible the book was his prayer. It was his prayer book. His prayer that book. The girl that got murdered years ago ripped the pages out of, and the medium kept it. She found it, and she knew that it was the priest's book, so because she was blackmailing the priest, right? I think so. And then okay. the so then Paulo didn't know who was blackmailing him, but he knew it was one of the four people that were in the seance, so he had to go kill all of them. But how think, did he know who was in the seance? I, it, I assume that they, because they were always talking about how the four of them always meet together 
and they're all because they he talked about all four of those characters in the very beginning when they're having dinner at the restaurant yeah. okay but so i know that was like a thing like he knew that those people would always be together okay i guess so and so he killed the midwife um and then the son um came to attack him and the at the church right yeah and that and that's where we and that's where we we thought that initially we thought that the, the weird kid was the murderer but so he didn't kill his kill he, he didn't kill his own mother the priest killed everybody except um the midwife no i'm sorry the priest the killed everyone but the medium the midwife killed the medium okay so why did the midwife the midwife killed the medium because the medium was blackmailing her too right because she and she just happened to find the evidence about him and so he was freaking out about that yeah i think so i i i guess there was a scene where they were talking about how the the midwife managed to find the recorded tape from the seance that had her incriminating yeah. incriminating evidence but she also found the reverie which was the prayer book yeah um, now why was he stealing the picture did he know that his brother would recognize the picture or was that just like a bird with a crystal plumage thing i guess i think the idea was that he knew that eventually that the memory was going to be triggered by that painting. And so he had to get rid of it and get rid of the picture too. Wow. That's really smart of him for someone who didn't seem that smart. Right. <clears throat> yeah, it's very, so it's very bird with the crystal plumage though. Yeah. So. And then, so everyone hears the priest confessing to this murder, like his Butler guy and the girlfriend and all this other stuff. So he does what anyone would do in the situation. He runs up a giant tower and jumps off the top of it. Yep. Which is so great for the Jalo score. <laughs> I knew it. Dude. I was so I was excited. Like, he was going to wow. do that. <laughs> and it, it was be. just like so telegraphed because it was like, it took him like five minutes to actually make it up to the top of it. But the whole time you're like, just hurry the fuck up. We know you're going to jump off the top of it. dude. <laughs> But, you know, he didn't do what the normal killers do in these situations, which is try to fight fight his way out. Like, he just said, you know what? Everybody figured me like out. He he was yeah, I'm just going to run up here and jump off the top. That's it. I'm done. Yeah. So that was, like, kind of a... And there was almost a that whole bit where he, like, went kind of crazy and saw himself giving everyone communion. Yeah. Like I thought it was going to be something where like he didn't realize that he had done all this stuff and like there was a good priest in him and a bad priest in him, no pun. And um, <laughs> there was just like, I don't know. I was just like, I kept thinking something else was going to happen, but um, I don't know. It was just like it, I guess all that shit makes sense now. But like when I watched it, I was just like, what the fuck are they talking about? Like, I didn't understand the series of events, but it's just weird that both of these movies had like two killers killing for like completely different reasons. Right. And in both movies, they all thought they were the same killer doing the same crime kind of thing. Yep. So, 
I don't know. I mean, it, it's worth a watch, especially if you liked House of the Laughing Windows. This will be fun. And if you liked um, Don't Torture a Duckling and uh, stuff like that, this could be good fare for you. And maybe even Hussar Die. Yeah. Because I think they're supposed to take place in the same place, which they look completely different. I don't know. That whole bit was kind of weird, too. But I think that's more of a um, translation era and error. And there's a cop with an awesome mustache in this movie. So yeah, if you like mustaches, you should definitely watch this movie. Well, I think that um, you're reminded of who saw her die simply because there's a lot of boats going through canals. Yeah. And who saw her die? I mean, this movie, if somebody told you, hey, this is a long lost classic Jalo from 1971, you would believe it because <clears throat> it looks like it it looks like it's way before its time. Well, that's the weird thing too, because every time I like I'm watching it and I kept thinking, I'm like, dude, I've seen this movie. Right. <laughs> and then something else would happen and I'm like, oh wait, no, I haven't seen this movie. Right. And then it kept going. And it took me halfway through the movie before I realized like this is the first time I've seen this movie. Yeah. But it's just like as you're watching it, you recognize so much stuff and so many tropes and so many just everything feels like something you've already seen before. But I think that was intentional. Yeah, I think so too. And I was thinking, I, I was, I was even getting kind of meta with the whole thing. Like what if they did this and meant to kind of infer that this really is the same Stefano from the house of the laughing windows. Like maybe, you know, at the end of the house of the laughing windows, he confronts the killer and they capture him. But I think, depending on what version of the film you watch, you might notice that the, the, the cops show up at the end. And so yeah. he gets away um, because... Becoming the professor. In House of Laughing Windows, there was the emphasis on the painting. He was, he was an art professor, and he came to help restore this painting in a church. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile... It, art magazine in the car or in the train. Yeah, and now and now he's kind of like this reincarnated guy who's kind of interested in art, but thinks it's really wild and crazy, like not something you'd ever do, at, you know, as as a profession. And then um, what was the other thing that was very similar? Like the 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 scene where in house in the house, well, I mean, in in both of those films there was a um, a female interest, and there was. Um, obviously the rural environment. Um, and plus there was the painting um, that contained some sort of a secret, um, which is a lift from deep red as well. You know, you have the, the thing that's painted on the wall that they, he eventually chips away and sees what the, what the secret was. Um, but what's the other thing? There was, um, there was something else that I wanted to say that, I, uh, oh, and the, and the woman in bed, that the old woman in the bed was done in House of Laughing Windows too. It was, she, in House of Laughing Windows, she was like this weird witch kind of woman who was laying in bed. And in this case, it was just the, um, the mother. But I, I, yeah. I, you know, you know, certainly the, the, the similarities aren't by accident. And a lot of them are done because the, the filmmakers know um, that, you know, these things were successful, so let's do them but again. The thing about this is that I think this is the first one that said, 
hey, let's take all of this stuff from these other movies that were really popular and put them together. Because back in like 70 and 71, it would just be like, hey, remember six months ago that movie called Cat of Something did good? Let's uh, name our movie after an animal. So they would do little things, but it wasn't like, hey, let's just take everything out of the book and throw it in this one movie because all those were popular. Right. So that was kind of neat. So I like that. But I mean... At the same time, as unoriginal as the film is, it's not so unoriginal that you can't watch it. Like you say, oh, this is this is just a complete turnoff because it's it's such a ripoff of all these other films. Like it, it had its own kind of sense yeah. of style, um, even though it was a borrowed style. But it was it was definitely watchable. You watched it. Be- hopefully, you watched it before you listened to this, because like I really thought the priest was innocent. <laughs> the whole time until he walked into the church. Right. And I was like, motherfucker, are you really going to fucking do me like this, dude? The one fucking time I'm like, no, that priest is a good priest. Yeah. Nope. Ain't going to yeah, happen. I mean, he didn't like, he, there was no way you could even tell from all the rest of the actions, you know, the visible actions of the priest throughout the film that he was, that he had any kind of bad Out of blood all in the him. movies where, like your amateur detective ends up being the killer kind of thing, you know, like this was like the best version of that. Yeah. I did not see that coming. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that he saw the first murder. Right. Or the one from the window. So that's like a real like clincher. Like, Oh yeah, he can't be the murderer because he's sitting there watching it happen. Right. Which is exactly what they did in deep red. But like you said, from the opposite angle, where yeah. where Mark looks out the window and sees Carlo, and sees the killer walking away, so he knows it's not Carlo, and he figures that out at the very end. Whereas in the beginning, they establish that that Paolo, the priest, is not the killer because he saw somebody getting killed from the window. It was even so, shot the same the same side. Yeah, like it's like everything about it was deep red. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. But did you also did you also notice um, that the music sounded a lot like pieces? The music was weird, and what I didn't know, according to Wikipedia, I did not notice this at all. But Goblin did some of the score on this. No, well, I didn't see Goblin. I saw um, Stelvio Cipriani. Yeah, right, and he's credited for doing a lot of the music for pieces. And there's um, a, there's this one musical motif in Bloodstained Shadow that sounds like a couple of notes on a music box, yeah. um, and that same like four or five note like melody is used in pieces for sure. Now that that main theme for Bloodstained Shadow is very synth prog rock heavy, yeah. and it sounds like a, a lot like Goblin and. Um, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and that sort of thing. But I, I, it also sounded a lot like pieces, and I'm like, oh, okay. So n- on top of everything else, the soundtrack sounds like a film that was, that, you know, that, a horror film that came out, you know, uh, five years later. So there's, there's a lot. I, I think that this film is, it's one of those where you have to say, like, let me put myself in a time capsule and forget everything I know about uh, Jolly and watch this and I'll be entertained. Um, and 
and uh, and and Jason says he's a priest who's trying to stop a pedophile. He's making progress. Okay, so he's a murderer, but we can work on that. Baby steps, which is a good point. It's a very good point, because yeah, when did you ever see that? Um, so yeah, I liked it. I I uh, it, it's it kind of feels. I don't know if it feels like cheating when you watch the film or you kind of left feeling a little bit trashy or dirty because the film or, or maybe it's just maybe it's just the graininess uh, and the and the atmosphere of the rural um environment that comes from you know Venice and not that Venice is very rural but th that whole area and and the the feeling that I get when I watch uh don't torture is kind of the same thing it's yeah. It doesn't have that same kind of flashiness that um, that case of the bloody iris has because it's no. like totally urban and fashion. I would I was going to ask you. I thought the fashion in this film was probably one of the worst films ever for fashion. Oh my god! She okay. Where were they walking? She they were walking around a corner, and she had on this like awful skirt and awful giant mock. I mean, not a mock turtleneck, but the ones that hang really low. Yeah, what about the and she coat? had on like she, but she had on these weird socks and these fucking ridiculous shoes. I can't remember what they were, but I remember just going, "What?" I, I wrote down like, "What the fuck is she wearing?" But then I was like so confused <laughs> by it, I didn't write down what it was. Right. But um, she dresses frumpy as shit, and yeah. then all of a sudden yeah. she takes off her clothes and she has like this crazy like belly necklace kind of thing yeah and she um, has a hot and she has a hot body but it was like she had the worst clothes on yeah you would never know yeah and and there was never. one scene where i wanted to just throw a big stick of chapstick at her because her lips looked like they had been through some sort of a, of a, a meat grinder or something i was like oh this it, is it was. disgusting she, she was she was kissing him on his uh crocheted turtleneck <laughs> so like her lips got all gapped yeah, if you if you get uh, hard for turtlenecks, this is the movie to watch. Holy cow! Is it ever? There are so many turtlenecks in this movie, and and the priest has a you know a collar to go along with the turtleneck. Yeah, so. it should be it should be called the bloodstained turtleneck. I think we should just put it out ourselves and call it that because I never saw a shadow with blood on it, but there were plenty of turtlenecks to go around. Yeah, no doubt. Or Miriam's secret, I would call it that too. Because <laughs> Miriam is by far the best character in this film, but um, so anyway, that's that. And um, next time, wh why don't you tell the lovely kids at home what we're going to be going over? Because I'm well, pretty excited. Yeah, well, I think you should tell it because I've never been able to pronounce this guy's name properly. Oh, Paul Nashy. Is it just Nashy? Okay. I never know if I'm saying it right or so. Okay, so so then I'll go ahead. We're we're gonna do a double Nashy uh, episode next time. We're gonna cover oh. Creep is gonna cover um, Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll. And I'm very excited I'm, about that. And I'm gonna cover uh, Dragonfly for each corpse. Boom. Now, apparently, there's another Nashy Jalo called Seven Murders for Scotland Yard, but. Um, I think these other two are, are really well known. I don't know if he has a major role in that third one, but I, he definitely has a major role in these two. And I've been wanting to see these for a long time and I've never seen them. So um, I'm excited to do that. Uh, Nashi is 
got his reputation as being what some sort of a werewolf or something is that where he he's he's the george hilton slash um peter cushing slash john wayne of spain okay that's probably a horrible description, but like <laughs> he basically, he's one of those guys that um, started doing that shit where he's like, I'm just gonna, and now I could be kind of wrong about this, but what I gather is he's one of those guys that was like, Hey, I'm going to start financing my own films and be the star of every fucking movie and be awesome. And like, I remember looking into it a long time ago, but there's like some, it's not like a list, but you could go and find a list of all the things he wouldn't do. So like when someone would give him the script, he's like, this isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen. That I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Paul Nashy never does this. Paul Nashy always does that. <laughs> like things like that. So um, he's definitely a character. That's so awesome. this is going to be fun. Cool. Yay. So um, go ahead and join our group on Facebook. Um and make sure to leave a review for us on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this lovely show. And um, I guess until next time. And go to jalloscore.com. Go to jalloscore.com and check that out. It's a lot of fun. So until next time, everybody, ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao.